you join me? Acts chapter number 2 this morning, Acts 2. As you're turning there, I just uh, want to say I, I love it when the Lord answers prayer, and He's already answered uh, prayer for me this morning, and I hope uh, you see that frequently in your life as well. Acts chapter number 2. So this morning we have a big subject, it's a big topic, uh, but I want to cover it all in one week, I don't want to spread it out. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you a little warning, it's going to be a lot of information, probably a lot of information, so I would encourage you um, to really ask the Lord, like really make this a prayer request, Lord show me the truth, uh, and we want to know that the ultimate source of truth comes from God's word. Uh, does that make sense? Our ultimate source of truth is God's Word. Uh, we learn things. There is truth that comes from what we see and hear and what we feel and experience. That is a source of truth. But even over that, over that is what the Word of God says. And so that's what we want to look to this morning. Um, my goal this morning is certainly not to be controversial, and I don't think it will be. I really don't think it will be. Uh, though there's obviously differences of opinion on the topic that we're going So we're doing expositional, but within this particular message, uh, it kind of lent itself to a topical style uh, that, that you'll feel. So rather than going verse, this is a point, and then we'll move down, and these verses are a point, and then these, we'll kind of get the dynamic of them, and we'll notice a couple of points out of the whole of it, pulling some truths here and there, rather than just going line by line like we normally do, I guess. All right, so here's where we're at. We're only in chapter 2. Do y'all realize it's been five weeks since we've been in the book of Acts? Five weeks. That's a long time. Uh, probably the longest uh, we've ever been between expositional uh, preaching, picking up where we left off. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of review today. All right? So here's the first part of the review. And then I'm going to actually read the first four verses that we preached on five weeks ago. So the first part of the review is we're at the point where Luke is writing two volumes to a man named Theophilus. The first is Luke's gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So we're at a point where Jesus has been resurrected. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's come back to life. But over a period of 40 days, over 40 days, he keeps showing up and presenting himself to his disciples, his apostles. They're convinced. They know he's alive. And then he ascends back to heaven. And that's where he is right now. In bodily form, he's ascended back to heaven. But before he left, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father that was going to come not many days from then. Not many days. So he's, he's been showing up, hit and miss, shows up, leaves, shows up and leaves for 40 days. And then he ascends, and he's not been back on earth since in bodily form. But he tells them the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Spirit. This is chapter 1, verse 5. Wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Spirit, and it's not going to be many days. So they know it's down to days. And then they had a business meeting in the upper room while they were waiting. Had to replace Judas with Matthias as the 12th apostle. Uh, that would be over the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes in the millennial kingdom that's still to come, literally. Then we came with that in mind. Let's go back now and look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Let's read that, and then we're going to review some things from five weeks ago. Look at verse 1. When the day... Of Pentecost arrived. This is a specific day on the Jewish calendar. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, I believe this is talking about, I think it's pretty clear, this is the 120 people in the upper room, the disciples and followers of Christ that were in Jerusalem, among them the 12 disciples, but really there's 120. 
They were all together in one place. So their, their hearts are unified. They're in the same location. We know from chapter 1 that they were devoting themselves to prayer. So they've been having a prayer meeting, and they know that the promise of the Father is to come. They don't know the exact day. Just so happens the day of Pentecost arrived. Verse 2, what happened in the upper room? And suddenly, notice, not gradually, not distant and getting closer, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. doesn't say there was a wind in the room. It says there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The sound filled the entire house. I mean, it is dominant. It is loud. We talked about how this was probably something akin to at least like sounding like a hurricane, maybe like a tornado, which if it was like a tornado would be like a train, just whistling that sound. That loud. They never would have heard anything like this. So this sound is filling the upper room. Verse 3, and Divided tongues as of fire, not fire, but divided tongues as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And what that means is there's some semblance of something that looks like a tongue, but it is divided. It looks like a flame also. And they see it, and it starts going and spreading and, and sitting on top in some visible form on all the 120 in the upper room. So they're hearing something. They're seeing something. Obviously, these are two symbols that point to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they have this sound and they see this sign. The Holy Spirit fills everyone in the room, all 120. And all 120 began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So before we hit today's passage, which would be verses 5 to 13, let's quickly review some things from a few weeks ago. Before Pentecost was a name used for a, a Christian denomination, it was actually one of the three feasts that the Jews would gather in Jerusalem. The first feast of the year, this was every year, the first feast was Passover. Then you had Pentecost, Penta meaning 50. 50 days after Passover comes Pentecost. So we know we're now in the month of June. Jesus died and resurrected in April, but now the Holy Spirit's arrival is going to come in the month of June at the Feast of Pentecost. Then if you'll recall, and I know some of you weren't here, I want to invite you. If you were not here five weeks ago, and what I'm about to go over is kind of sounds new, or you, if you weren't here, please go back on the website. You need to listen to that message. It was very key, a very key message, very important for us moving forward in the book. Because we looked, I'm going to hit it briefly. Those of you who were here, I want to invite you, as I say these terms, quickly review in your mind, do you know what these terms mean? Because we back them up with Scripture, and that's why I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one uh, from five weeks ago. So three terms, they're all, again, in that message, we prove all three of them happen at the same time, though we only have one of these spelled out with a word or a phrase in verse 4, but all three happen. So here's... Term number one that we looked at, the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus told them to get ready for the baptism of the Spirit. It was going to come not many days. And sure enough, it comes here. So what is the baptism of the Spirit? This was the first instance of its kind that brought the church into where it is at this point. But what I'm going to define, I'm going to give you a term, is the baptism of the Spirit that happens individually in our lives. 
When does that happen? So all of them in that upper room were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does the term even mean? Reviewed. You should, some of you that were here should be like, okay, what was the baptism of the Spirit? The baptism of the Spirit is for us, now that we're on this side of Pentecost, it was the event, for us, it's the event at the moment of salvation where we as a new believer are baptized. The word baptized means to be placed into, so we're baptized, placed into the Holy Spirit. So it's a very poor illustration. But if you were to imagine the Holy Spirit is here, and before I'm a Christian, I'm not in the Holy Spirit. But the moment I get saved, I trust Jesus as my Savior. I am now placed into the Holy Spirit. I was outside of that, placed in Him. And then I'm actually united with all other believers who've ever trusted Jesus as their Savior. And eventually all those who ever will, we are united into a body of Christ, a spiritual body called the church. Not the church building, not a church, the church. We're united in the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a one-time event. Our second term, I'm going to throw it to you. This one you should kind of be able to say, oh yeah, I do remember that one. It's the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. What is that and when does it happen? The indwelling of the Spirit is separate and, and different from the baptism. It is the moment of time when at salvation... The Holy Spirit literally comes and enters and permanently abides and stays in the physical body of a believer. So the first one, all of us are placed into, if you're a Christian, all of us are Christians, we're placed into the spiritual body of Christ, the real church. But this indwelling is different. The Holy Spirit comes and enters my body, 1979. My body became a temple, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, you have that too. All Christians have the Holy Spirit of God living in them, indwelling them. Now we have verse 4. Verse 4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is different. This is a third term, a different term. The filling of the Holy Spirit is where the, it's the state of being not just indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, but, but empowered controlled by the Holy Spirit so that our service for the Lord and particularly this, our speech, are empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So watch, at all times in this body, the one you're looking at right now, I am in here at all times. I have a will. I have my own ideas. I have my own agenda. I have my thoughts and beliefs. But there's another person that lives in here since 1979, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. And when I'm taking control and dominating, I'm living the life that Jeff can live. But when I invite and allow the Holy Spirit, particularly invite and and try to have his thoughts and his beliefs and his words and his actions, now he's dominating and I'm really moving to the second position, the lesser, and he's just dominating this body. And that's where we want to live. But here's a key difference. Watch these three terms. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a one-time event. But the filling of the Holy Spirit happens again and again. Literally in the book of Acts, it was proven five weeks ago, the same people would be filled and then not filled with the Holy Spirit. So they're indwelt but not controlled. And then the Holy Spirit fills and controls. And then they're not. And it happens again and again. So much so that the book of Ephesians commands us, be filled with the Spirit. You're never commanded, be baptized in the Spirit, be indwelt with the Spirit. 
You're commanded be filled with the Spirit. So if you're ever filled with the Spirit, it means you're already indwelt and you have been baptized. But we are to be giving ourselves to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And some of you are probably like, okay, don't give me a written quiz on that. Okay, I'm not going to today. We'll do that next week, okay? And those that make less than a 90, I'm kidding. All right, move on. One last thought before we do today's text. Some people, when they think of the book of Acts, they think of one thing. They think of speaking in tongues, which comes in verse number four. I want to remind you what we talked about then. So here's setting the stage. The gift of tongues is real. The gift of tongues is real. But it is only mentioned in two New Testament books. The book of Acts and later on the book of 1 Corinthians where we're going to end up today. The book of 1 Corinthians is one of the first books written in the New Testament. So it's obviously in this historical book of Acts, the gift of tongues, and then it's going to be 1 Corinthians. There's 27 New Testament books. In 25 books, tongues is not mentioned. In the book of Acts, 28 chapters, it's only mentioned in three chapters. It is not the dominant feature in any of the three chapters. It's not the dominant feature in chapter 2. You will know that by the time we finish. It is real. It's here But it's not the dominant feature in any of the three chapters of Acts. In 1 Corinthians, it does kind of dominate, but you're going to see Paul's whole disposition toward this gift. I say that because that's only six chapters out of 260 in the entire New Testament. Did you catch that? 260 New Testament chapters, tongues, only appears in six of them. And in like four of those, it's very minimal in its mention, not dominant at all. So with that in mind, let's now read today's text. We're obviously going to be talking about the gift of tongues. So in verse 4, they're all filled. They're in this house. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. There were dwelling in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. There's dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. That's a phrase I'm going to explain in a minute, okay? That is not a literal to the end of the earth, someone from Canada and someone from North America and South America and Central America and from China. That's not what that means. Obviously, Luke is using a phrase to get a point across. Look at verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound. So there's some debate. What is the sound? At this sound, the multitude. There's going to end up being a large crowd. We know the crowd is at least how many people? Somebody tell me. By the end of the chapter, we know it's at least how many? Over 3,000. Verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them, the 120, speak in his own language. And they were amazed. And astonished. We've already heard the word bewildered. Now we're looking. They were amazed. They're astonished. Saying. So here's what's confusing. Here's what's blowing their minds. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And they're like. They know these people cannot be speaking our languages. They, they're not from our land. They've never been taught this. This is impossible. Verse number 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? I'm not going to spend a long time in verses 9, 10, and the first part of 11. I'm not going to bog down there. 
I don't know the rhyme or the reason of the exact pattern why Luke does this the way he did. I, I, I put a map in your handouts this morning, and we'll refer to that briefly a little bit later. It's a whole punch, so if you want to put that in your notes, that's great. Look at verse 9. What does this mean, these people from all over uh, the world at that time that are, are in Jerusalem? Look at verse 9. Who are these people who are hearing the 120 speak in their own native language? Verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. All these people are in Jerusalem. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes. You're like, what is a proselyte? Okay, I know what Jews are. Jew, Jews are Jews. G- proselytes are Gentiles who were born, not a Jew, not Jewish blood, but hear the Jewish religion of the Old Testament and adopt that. If they're males, they get circumcised. They get baptized. And they start adopting the law as something they're going to live under. So who's here in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 11? Both Jews and proselytes. He mentions two more areas. Cretans, this is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and Arabians. Now look at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? What's going on? What does this mean? But others, and I'll not really touch this one this morning. We'll just read it. It'll really flow in next time. But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. You catch what they're, that's just noise. That's nothing really happening. It's a bunch of noise. They're just drunk. And we'll see how Peter addresses that as we're coming up, Lord willing, next week. Would you notice three things with me this morning? The first two particularly out of these verses. Number one, the nature of tongues and acts. What is the nature of tongues and acts? I'm not going to hit every verse here, but I want you to go back and start at verse 5. Would you look at verse 5? So let's go back and put ourselves in the scene. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. We know it's the day of Pentecost, this feast in the month of June. It's going to be a week-long feast. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Guys, that does not mean literally every nation under heaven. It means every nation to which the Jews had been dispersed had representatives in Jerusalem at this time. In fact, these people from all over the world just happened to be among the 3,000 people who are hearing what's happening in verses 4 through 13. So these people are all, we, we read like 15 or 16 places that they've come from. So it doesn't mean literally every place in the world. It means every place the Jews have been dispersed. Do, are you familiar with the Old Testament? In the 700s, the Jews were deported, put into exile, taken into captivity. Not all of them, but they have their homeland, and they're carried away captive to, the, uh, to Assyria. The Assyrians conquer them and take them away in the 700s. Later on in the 600s and the 500s, the Jews are carried away captive. Then the Persians defeat the Babylonians. And the Persians say, you can go back home. And a lot of the Jews go back home. Let this sink in. The Jews are the one nation of people in the world that have a homeland, but not all Jews live in their homeland. Why not? Because they've been scattered around the world. So verse 5, here's what the last thing I want to point out in verse 5. The Bible says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. There's, There's some debate about what's meant by the word dwelling. Some just take it very simply this way. Oh, yeah. There were Jews from all the known world. They know that this is one of their annual feasts and they're supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so they're so devout in their Judaism that when there's a feast, they make their way to Jerusalem and they're temporarily dwelling there for the feast. That is surely implied. But I think it also is pointing to another group who's even more devoted. They're more devout. Watch. 
They are born. These other people are born in these other areas around Israel, sometimes far away. But they're so devoted to their Judaism that when they realize what's going on, we're going to leave this. Hey, great-great-great-grandfather didn't leave, and my parents didn't leave, but I'm going to go back and live in Jerusalem. I'm selling my stuff in this foreign land. I'm going to move back. And so Jerusalem is filled with people that that's all they know is living in Judea and Jerusalem. Then there's people who were visiting for the feast for a week. And then there's those who were born in other parts as part of the, what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. And they have now made their way back to the city of Jerusalem. I think we have a note on that if you'd write that quickly. So many Jews are visiting for Pentecost. And others have already moved there permanently. Though they were born as part of the diaspora, part of the dispersion of the Jews. While you're writing, I want you to hear this. Their presence in Jerusalem on this day is very important because they're going to make it clear that the tongues that is spoken by the 120 is not gibberish. It is not gibberish. Some of the local Judeans are going to accuse them they're just drunk with wine. It's just gibberish. They're just making a bunch of noise. No, thankfully the Lord had people from around the world that were there to recognize, no, these are languages they're speaking. You don't recognize it, but that's my, that one's my language. I don't know about all those other people. That's my language. And God beside me go, well, I don't know about that one. That one over there is speaking my language. And that one over this person is going, there, she's speaking my language. He's talking. Okay, these are actual languages. Now look quickly at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So guys, I'm going to give you my opinion here. It's my opinion. What is the sound? Is the sound the rushing mighty wind in the, in the upper room? Did that, is that what they, they came together for? Or was it the sound of the people speaking in tongues? Having read this over and over multiple times, many, many times through the years, I still arrive at this conclusion I'm going to offer to you. Again, I wouldn't die for this. I'm going to offer it to you. I believe that the sound in the upper room of the rushing mighty wind gets the attention of no doubt some who are nearby. I believe it was that loud. And they're wanting, they've never heard anything like this. And as they're there, I don't know how many of them there were. Then as the people, the spirit-filled believers, the followers of Christ, start spilling out of that house, presumably the upper room, probably very close to the temple. As they start spilling out, what initially got their attention was the sound of the wind. But now more so is this talking in these in this, in this in tongues. That suddenly now has these people's attention even more so. And the crowd now is swelling and growing and growing. And no doubt this is too large for this area. So it appears there's a movement down to the temple where eventually Peter is going to preach his sermon. So I think the first thing that got their attention was the sound of the wind. But then that was even, that's forgotten because this miracle is taking place of people speaking in tongues. So to get to the first point, what are we asking? What is the nature? Jeff, what's the nature of tongues in the book of Acts? Look at verse 4. Got your Bible open. Look with your own eyes, and let's just quickly, to me it's crystal clear. And they, all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Other tongues. They were speaking as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Look at verse 6. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 4, they're speaking in other tongues. Verse 6, each one's hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8. 
How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 11, one more time. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. You see what Luke is doing? He's interchanging tongues and language, tongues and language. So Luke is making crystal clear. The gift of tongues is none other than the ability to speak in known human languages without ever having learned the known human language. If you would write that down. What is speaking tongues in the book of Acts? It is clearly the ability to speak in known human language without ever having learned the language. Never been taught it. This is an amazing miracle of God. If I were to stand here this morning, and I'll tell you, it would take a miracle of God. If I were to stand here this morning, because I barely have a grip on the English language. But if suddenly I just started rattling off Russian, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Cantonese, Wolof, Mandarin, y'all would probably say, he is so smart. Man, that guy is smart. But I've not learned these things. Just God gives me the ability. It's not how smart I am. God just gives me the ability. And I just start speaking in these languages. And you don't even know all the languages. But man, it's impressive. This is an amazing gift. Another thought, again, keeping in tune with what is the nature of speaking tongues. That, that note you just took is the main thought. But I want to add one more to it. Look, if you would, verse 4. Because I want, we went back that far for a reason. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. They in the upper room were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the word speak and utterance. Here's why I'm saying that. If you only read today's text, verses 5 through 13, if you read that over and over and over, you might would come to a wrong conclusion. And the wrong conclusion would be this. I think what happened is these people had this gift, and one of them starts speaking, one of them is talking, and everybody's hearing in their own language what that one guy is saying, as if the miracle is He's talking normally in his own language, but the words change in the air so that everybody's hearing. I'm hearing this. What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing this. That's not the gift. Write this down. Verse 4 means that the miracle is a miracle of speaking. It is not a miracle of hearing. The gift of tongues was a gift, a miracle placed upon the believers, the followers of Jesus who are spirit-filled. It's not a miracle for the unsaved crowd who suddenly has this miraculous ability to hear things in their own language. No, it's a gift of speaking, not of hearing. And just before we go to our second thought this morning, I want to mention something that uh, is a confession. And I'll throw it out to you. And you go home and you bounce it around and you wrestle with it, all right? So here's, I want to give you three things at least. And somebody may say, oh, I know definitively. Okay, possibly you may see something I've not seen in Corinthians and Acts and others have not seen, but I wouldn't die for the end. I have my opinion of these. In fact, my opinion changed a little bit yesterday on one of them. It's that there are certain questions in this text and even bringing in Corinthians, we're just not sure of the total nature of what happened. Question number one, don't know the answer 100%. Question number one, did the people speaking in tongues know what they were saying? So they're speaking, this guy's saying, you're, you're talking, that's, that's my home language. 
did they, the speaker, know what they were saying? They're talking it. It's real. Did they know? I don't know. I don't know if they did or not. It is possible some of them did know what they were saying. But it is also, again, based off 1 Corinthians, because there's this desire, we need an interpreter at times. It is possible that the speaker, I'm, Holy Spirit's just filled me, and they're just talking. I don't even know 100% what I'm saying. And the other person, I know what you're saying. You're talking about the wonderful works of God. Second thing, we're not 100%. Did the gift remain on these people or did it leave? Was it just this moment or did it leave them? Or did it go away and then come back later? And go away and come back later on an as-needed basis and as the Lord chose? Hard to say. It's hard to say. And I know some have some opinion based off of another text, um, but it's not definitive. Third thing, and this is a big one, is the gift of tongues in the book of Acts the same as the gift of tongues in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because many people say, well, we're talking about two different things here. Two different things. I know, yeah, we know what happened here. That's definitely known languages. We agree with that. But when we get over to 1 Corinthians, now that's something different going on. I'm going to offer to you that I believe it's the same. And when we get over to 1 Corinthians 14, pay attention to verse 10 and 11. Because it seems to me pretty clear Paul is talking about known human languages. So just before we hit our second point this morning, know this. It was a gift. It was an ability that was real, but it was, an, it was a gift. Nobody chose it. No one said, I'll take tongues for 1200 Alex. No. God gave them a gift. They didn't learn it. Does that make sense? They didn't go to a class. And learn how to, they didn't go to a class, they didn't choose it, they didn't practice it. You say, why are you emphasizing that? Because there's some in our county who want to choose the gift, and in our county, some churches offer classes on how to speak in tongues, and oh, you, you can go practice on how to speak in tongues. It's not in the Bible. That's not what happened. Number two, let's notice the purpose of tongues. You saw that already in the title. You knew we were going there. The nature of tongues and the purpose of tongues in Acts chapter 2. Notice with me, if you would, this first thought, you're going to say, Jeff, you're undermining your whole message. Actually, I'm not. No, really get what I'm about to say. Here's what's strange. All the people in Jerusalem that day, all of them were Jews. And if you go home and study that map and what was going on in the world at that time, here's what we know. Jews or proselytes who, were, who became Gentiles who become Jews, they would have all spoken Aramaic or Greek or both. Everybody in Jerusalem, is Jew, they're only Jews and proselytes. There may be a few God-fearers who are around who are testing the waters of Judaism, but we know that there's these Jews and these proselytes who become Jews, and they're all going to be able to speak Greek and Aramaic. Now, here's the thing. The disciples would have been able to speak Greek and Aramaic. They're going to write the New Testament in Greek. They're going to be able to speak. My point is, the guys who are going to talk, the people coming out of the room who are talking, and the people they're talking to, they already have a common language Speaking in tongues in these other languages is actually not necessary. It's not necessary. So why did God do it? God did it as a sign. He does it as a sign. Now the next thing I'm going to point out, I'm going to have you write it down, is important. I hope you'll get this thought because it's going to launch into what are these purposes of, of tongues in the book of Acts. 
Five weeks ago, we made a, with me, we made a distinction. Baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit. I believe, I mean, this is my thoughts here. I believe that the mere indwelling of the Holy Spirit, just the Holy Spirit living in my body, if I'm never filled, I'm permanently indwelt. I've already been baptized, a one-time act that, that his results are permanent. And I have the Holy Spirit. He'll never leave me or forsake me. That's why I know that I'm not going to lose my salvation. That's one of the reasons. That and the promises of God. So the Holy Spirit never leaves. It's a permanent one-time thing. I believe that the mere indwelling of the Spirit gives all of us who have that, all of us Christians, it provides certain things. Like, we hit these earlier, but you've forgotten them. So I'm going to review them again. You're going to write them in a moment. What does the Holy Spirit just living in me provide? It provides me assurance. I know I'm a Christian. The Holy Spirit reminds me and bears witness. Though I'm filled or not, His indwelling reminds me. Number two, I have an understanding of the Bible. Now, sometimes it's a struggle. A lot of times it's a struggle. But an unsaved person is not going to really understand the Bible. But if you as a believer will open your Bible and pray, you have the very author of the Scriptures living inside you. You ought to pray before you read the Bible. Lord, show me what this means. You have the ability to understand the Scriptures. Far more than the unsaved or like you were before you were saved. Third thing, sanctification. Watch, just by the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, and I say this based off of Romans chapter 8, verse 29, all believers are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctification is where God saves me in this position, but he moves me along the road of becoming more and more like Christ. That's called sanctification, and I believe that's the Holy Spirit indwelling me does that in all believers, whether we're ever filled or not. And one other thing we have is guidance. We go to the Word of God, how to live our life. But sometimes the Bible is not specific about specific questions you have about 2023 living in America. But you have the Holy Spirit, and He will guide you when you ask Him. All believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and all believers have those four things provided to them. But the filling of the Spirit is different because it always affects our speech for a very specific reason. Let's write that note quickly. The indwelling, the indwelling... Gives us assurance, understanding of Scripture, sanctification, and guidance. But the filling of the Spirit always affects our language, our speech. I say this for this reason. If I were doing an outline, I know you're writing, but if I were doing an outline, and I have the baptism of the Spirit, Roman number 1, the indwelling of the Spirit, Roman numeral 2, and then Roman numeral 3, the filling of the Spirit. Under there, I might have an A, B, C, D. So the main point being the filling of the Spirit. But in this case, the manifestation of the filling of the Spirit was tongues for them. That may be an A, B, C, or D. So here's my point. What God is doing through tongues is the same thing He does every time that He fills a person with the Holy Spirit. And it's always going to affect our speech. The filling always affects a believer's speech. It's going to come out there. So with that in mind, let's notice three great purposes that God used tongues in the book of Acts chapter 2. And I'll propose to you it's the same Great purposes that God, even in our day, uses the filling of the Spirit. These same three things will be accomplished. Number one, what is the purpose? What was God doing? What meaneth this? Verse 12. Number one, write it down. 
the gift of tongues indicated that something significant was being said. Something significant is being said. So here's these people speaking in tongues, 120 of them. Here's 3,000 plus people who end up hearing this activity happen. All they know is something massive is taking place and this is getting their attention. Continue writing. I want you to write this note. The filling of the Spirit and tongues, it's like 1 and 1A, the filling of the Spirit and tongues both serve to get the attention of the hearers that something important is being said, something significant. I need to pay attention to this. This is super important. So number one, you've got my attention. That is a miracle. You're not, has anybody ever, how are you doing that? We heard a sound and that's great, but how are you doing this? It's blowing their mind. They don't know what to do with it. In verses 6, 7, and 12, there's these words. Bewildered, amazed, astonished, perplexed. All this shows, we watch, we know we're witnessing a miracle, but what's the point of it? In verse number 12, they ask a question. Uh, what does this mean? They're not asking, hey, what are they saying? Does anybody understand what they're saying? No, I know what you're saying. I know the content. Why is this happening? You've got my attention, but why? What's happening here? And I'll propose to you the answer to the why is verses 14 to 41. That's the why. It's getting their attention for this. Just before we hit the second purpose, notice with me if you would. Look at verse 11 quickly. Look at verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now watch. Here's a lesson. I'm going to draw a principle from speaking in tongues, I'm going to draw a principle from being filled with the Spirit. Watch. They're not filled with the Spirit and have their speech affected so that they're speaking in tongues. They don't do this. Hey, I can prove to you that God has given me the filling of the Spirit and a miraculous ability to speak languages I don't know. Watch. I'm going to give you the weather report, weather report in your language. Or watch, I'm going to talk about the sports page in your language. Or hey, I'm going to talk about hairstyles and makeup and fashion in your language. And you'll know that I have this ability. Learn, please get what I'm saying. The content of their speech when somebody's filled with the Spirit is about the wonderful works of God. God does not fill a person with His Spirit so that they can go off and talk about other things. It's so that He empowers their speech so that it's a powerful gospel witness about Jesus Christ. It's about salvation. It's about the truths of the Word of God. Not just to talk about anything, it's to talk about specific things. Secondly, why did God use the gift of tongues and why does He employ the filling of the Spirit in a person's life? Number two, it made what was said clear. It made what was said clear. I go back to verse 8. These people's minds are blown. They know this is an absolute miracle. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? I remember hearing Martha and, and Brian Connard both use this phrase. They would talk about wanting to learn a language that was foreign to them as, as Americans to try to learn this language because they want to be able to speak to people in their blank language. Starts with the letter H. In their heart language. We want to learn to talk. That's why they're going to go learn Wolof and not just... French. We want to speak to these people in their heart language. So here's these people who've been born outside of Israel, moved there, or visiting for a feast, 
And all of a sudden, God starts talking to them in their heart language. They're, yes, I could use just Greek or Aramaic, but I'm going to talk to you and show you there's a miracle. But I, I want to make it clear. So, guys, based on that, I want to propose that when the gift of tongues is used properly, it's going to make something clear, not confused. And number three is probably the main one. What's the main purpose? What's happening here? It made what was said believable. It made what was said believable. This is key. Hold your spot in Acts. Go, if you would, 1 Corinthians. After you've written that, go 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You really got to get this point, 1 Corinthians 14. Later on, we'll skip this verse. As time allows. But for now, so why the gift of tongues? Because God wanted to get their attention. God wanted to speak clearly to them, and he does in their heart language, their native language. But now look at verse number 22. We find out that God does what he does because he wants to make the message believable. Verse 22. The Bible says, thus tongues, the gift of tongues, are a sign. It's a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. I want you to focus mainly on 22a. Thus tongues, our message today, are a sign not for believers. The main ministry of tongues is not for saved people. Save people to save people. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. It's something God gives believers to minister to unbelievers. Now... I want you all to help me. And boy, you really need to get this thought. It's key. Help me. In verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, how many people are going to get saved? Verse 41, how many? 3,000. Don't answer out loud, but answer within your heart. Everybody. How did they get saved? Answer in your heart. How did they get saved? In verse 41, how did they get Here's your hint. They got saved the same way you got saved. Pay attention. They got saved by hearing the gospel about Jesus, believing it and trusting it, just like you. You say, okay, Jeff, obviously everybody gets saved that way. I'm saying that for this reason. They did not get saved because someone spoke in tongues. Speaking in tongues saved no one. You say, then that was pointless. No. They got saved by listening to the apostles' message the gospel message about Christ, they put their faith in that message from God and the Christ of the gospel message. They got saved by doing that, but here's my point. They never would have listened to the apostles if they first were not convinced that these are the true men of God. So the gift of tongues did not save them, but it served a purpose to get their attention. Otherwise, I promise you, these 3,000 people would blow them away. Like, who do we care what you have to say? Everybody's going around like they have something to say. Why would I ever believe you? When Peter preaches in verses 14 to 41, he's going to call Jews. Y'all know about Jews? They are taught their doctrine from like birth. They see it lived out and it's just drilled in them over and over. Peter's going to stand and in essence, he's going to call them to have a major, massive shift in theology. And they are going to do it. 3,000 of them are going to do it in a matter of minutes. Why? I mean, they've been taught this other all their life, and he calls for a major shift, and they're going to do it because of this strange man. Because the gift of tongues got their attention. It made it really clear. 
And I'm believing what this guy has to say. He sounds believable. I believe this. Write this thought. Since the apostles were living in a time period, the apostles were receiving massive amounts of new revelation. The apostles were receiving much new revelation. Remember, tongues are given for a sign. What happens? God gave the gift of tongues to validate the apostles as the true and authoritative messengers of God. And we're, we're going to have that same thought come over multiple times in the book of Acts. Hope you caught it. If, if, this, if you don't get that right there, you need to go home and really think about it. What is the main thing God is doing with the gift of tongues? Is because he's giving his message to the apostles, but the people won't receive it unless they have something that causes them to, to put these men in a position of authority in their mind. How do we know you're the true men of God? A lot of people are going around saying, hey, think like this. Live like I say. You should believe what I say. You Okay. Everybody's doing that. How do we know these guys are the ones really we need to be listening to? Because God validated them with the gift of tongues, among other things. Think of it this way. We have something now they didn't have. So today, how do you know who is a true messenger of God? How do you know? A lot of people, a lot of people on the radio, a lot of people on TV, a lot of podcasts. Who are the true people of God? If this is you, well, if they sound convincing or if they dress nice and apparently make a lot of money, they're doing something right. That's who I want to follow. Or if they seem to have some special gift or if they're able to do miracles, they must be the person of God. No, no, no. That's not how we today identify if someone's a true messenger of God. How do we today recognize them? By the New Testament. We take their message and does it align with the New Testament? See, the people in this day that we're talking about, they didn't have the New Testament. The apostle's going to be one that, that writes it. So how do we know to listen to them before the New Testament is there as that touchstone to really know, well, God gave them the gift to do miraculous things. Let's see, go over to Hebrews chapter 2. So I did remember it, Astrid. I, keep, I kept forgetting this text. Flip over, because we were there like last week, right? We were in Hebrews 2 last week. We're going to hit the first few verses, and then we'll move to our third point this morning. Look at Hebrews 2. You're doing well so far. I want to say that, but I want to invite you. There's lots of information, lots of uh, content still to come. So pray for the Lord. Lord, since we're only going to hit this one time, I don't want to visit this again and again and again. We're not going to hit it again like this when we get to chapter 10 or chapter 19. We're going to do it now. Look at verse 1. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 2. Look at verse 1. Therefore. You with me? Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We need to pay even closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. Everybody look this way quickly. Back in chapter 1. Verses 1, 2, 3, here's what happened. The writer says, back in old time, back in Judaism, there were the Jewish forefathers. God, watch what I'm doing here. God spoke to the forefathers, Jewish forefathers, through the prophets. And the prophets got their information from God. And we know that at Mount Sinai, Moses was a prophet. Angels were involved in that. But God spoke to the forefathers, the Jewish forefathers, and he did it often through the prophets. God speaks to them, and they speak to them. God's doing the talking to them, but he does it through them. These people are talking to them, and it's the voice of God because God's told them what to say. 
But also in chapter 1, here's what happens. The writer here is talking probably around 68, 69 A.D. And he says, that happened then, but now God has spoken to us. God spoke to them through the prophets, but he spoke, God has spoken to us through his son. So now on this level, they had the prophets. We've got his son. God's talking to us through his son. He sent his own son. Son outranks prophets. Now reread verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Here's why. For since the message declared by angels, he's talking about the Old Testament. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, when God said something was going to happen, it always happened because of that. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have a better thing. We're hearing from God directly through His Son. We, if they didn't listen and bad things happen, we better know bad things will happen if we neglect to hear what His Son says. Now, the middle of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Everybody catch that? It was first said by the Lord, the Lord Jesus, but these people are like second, third generation Christians. They weren't there to hear it directly from the Lord. Where did they hear? Verse 3 again. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Do you see what these people are saying? We know that these men who got their message from Jesus are the true men of God because God bore witness through miracles and signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. And that's what we were just talking about. Why the gift of tongues? To make the message believable. All right. Back to Acts 2, look at verse 9, and then we'll go into our last point. Acts 2, look at verse 9 through 11. Y'all got your maps? Okay, take that. We're going to give it about 20 seconds. Ready? This is great. Take it home. Honestly, it, most of you have the... Ah, if you have a study Bible, you have a version of this map. Just listen. Pretty much he's going to start from the east. You see over there? So I'm going to read verse 9. So who's here? People that used to live in what part of the world? The Parthians and Medes and Elamites. You see those over to the far right, the east? The Roman Empire had not yet conquered those people. Those people were still resistant. That's like Iran, Iraq. But then he keeps coming. Luke writes, And residents of Mesopotamia, Judea. Now we're coming across Mesopotamia. It's, there between the, it's, it's the land between the rivers, Euphrates and Tigris. And then we come down, he mentions Judea, which is not just the little area around Jerusalem. It's that whole, it represents that whole area of what we would call Palestine. But now just kind of find these. You see the area above Judea and to the, to the west of Mesopotamia? That's Turkey. You got all those five names? They're mentioned here. Well, I'm going along within 20 seconds. Here we go. So we have Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea. Judea. Now watch, here comes five. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Not the continent of Asia, but what's called Asia Minor. Phrygia and Pamphylia, all those are in what we call Turkey. Then he runs down south and he mentions some of the believers were there, or some of the Jews were there from Egypt and the parts of Libya. So now you're moving, you see Egypt down below the Mediterranean Sea and then move to the left. So belonging, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, you see the little land of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene carried the Lord's cross. And then he jumps up and westward, far westward, and we have the visitors from Rome. 
got people from Jews from Rome are in town. Both Jews and proselytes, and he mentions two more, Cretans, who is this island down below Greece, right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. I was able to go there by God's grace. Cretans and Arabians. So we had these people from over in Arabia, and that's the far right lower corner. So people from all over where Jews had been dispersed, they're all represented, and they start hearing their home heart language being spoken by the 120. And I think the main lesson there that I'm just going to touch on is this. The worldwide message of the gospel, the Great Commission, started right here on this day. Where God brought these people there. They heard the gospel. And particularly, can I point out one? Those from Rome apparently got saved. And some of them took their their newfound faith in Christ back to Rome. And started the church in Rome. Because Rome is one of the few places mentioned in the New Testament that was not founded by an apostle. Paul started the Corinthian and Ephesian and Philippian and Thessalonican church. But the Romans started their own church. And apparently it starts right here in chapter 2. All right, now, let's do our third and final section. What is the place of tongues among the spiritual gifts? What's the place of tongues? And with that, we finally do need to make our way over to 1 Corinthians. Would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? This will be our third last thought this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you're going to want your Bible open, okay? So if you have a tablet, click on 1 Corinthians, find chapter 12. Be ready to navigate. Here we go. Verse 7. One verse to start with. So where does tongues in all the spiritual gifts, what's its place among in those gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse number 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. Very important. Everybody needs to get it. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. You have your Bible open? Not on the screen. Look up to verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. Talking about spiritual gifts. All kind of spiritual gifts. He doesn't name them all here. Skip down to verse 7 again. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Write this thought. Spiritual gifts. All spiritual gifts are given for the benefit of other believers in the body. Not just for the benefit of ourselves. All spiritual gifts are based off that verse. I know this to each, verse 7, every Christian has a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. It was given to each Christian to benefit all the believers in the body of Christ, not just themselves. And I know why Paul is doing this, because the Corinthians were abusing a certain spiritual gift and making it just about edifying themselves, and it's not benefiting anybody else. And so we'll see that coming up. Can I quickly say this? Grace Fee, would you listen? Do you know the spiritual gifts? Have you ever studied them? Do you know the spirit? I'm not going to have you raise your hand. Do you know the spiritual gifts? Do you know your spiritual gift? I know right now I could, I could say, raise your hand if you know your spiritual gift. And there's quite a few of you who could stand and say, mine is this and that and that. Mine is this with some of that. Mine is teaching. With some prophecy, which you're going to hear me use that synonymously with prophecy. Not like predicting the future. Declaring God's truth like preaching. It's not my primary, preaching is not my primary gift. You can figure out teaching is. That's why I kill you guys with so many details. I love it. Some of you are like, yeah, that's okay. I like preaching, okay. It's my, probably my secondary thing. Today is a lot of teaching. 
Do you know yours? Do you know them? Do you know yours? Big question. Are you using yours to serve this body? Are you using your gift? If you're sitting there saying, oh, I know mine. And please don't say mine's playing the piano or mine's singing. Playing the piano and singing is nowhere listed as, as spiritual gifts. Study the spiritual gifts. Know what they are. Learn what yours is and deploy it here in our body. You should be serving our body. Spent longer on that than I planned, but let's keep moving. So what's the place of tongues among the spiritual gifts? Write this down and then we'll defend it. A brief reading of chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians would reveal to us that the gift of tongues is two things. It is real in Corinth. It is real. They had it. And it is downplayed by Paul. It is real in Corinth. But the gift of tongues is downplayed by Paul. So much so that I'll have you write this down. Paul is going to put the gift of tongues last in a list of rankings. Paul's going to rank things. He's literally going to say this is first, this is second. He's going to move on down. And he's going to put tongues last. But that's not how the Corinthians saw it. And that's not how some in Anderson County see it. This is what the Bible says. So if you want to get your information with Scripture, we're going to go with the Bible around here. It's the last. You say, where in the world is that? I'm glad you asked. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. Chapter 12, look at verse 28. Paul writes, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. Set, by the way, the apostles didn't decide to be apostles. God made that decision. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and varieties of tongues or various tongues. Are all apostles? Well, the answer is obviously, well, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No. It was never meant that all would speak with tongues. Paul says, do all interpret? Like, they spoke in tongues. I, I can tell you what that language, God's given me the ability. I know what that language is, and I know what they just said. And you share that? Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And if you want to know what the higher gifts are, you would look over at chapter 14, verse 1. So apparently that one, in chapter 14, verse 1, can be developed and, and improved and gained. Obviously by prayer and study and begging God to do that. Flip over, if you would, chapter 14. So what I want to do now, and if you ever say, I want to know a lot of what the Bible has to say... More than I have time for, then I want you to go home and just, you read chapter 14 over and over and over and over. And I promise you, you should come to the conclusion, boy, Paul is really downplaying tongues. He's really downplaying it. Look at chapter 14. We don't have time to read it all. So let's jump into verse 4. Watch it. Here we go. The one who speaks in a tongue, I'm going to offer you the one who has the gift and the ability to stand and speak in a foreign language. They've never learned the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So you see he's laying some groundwork. And again, the idea of prophesying is not just predicting future and making those kind of prophecies. It's declaring truth. Some people, it's their primary thing. So much so, verse 5, if that wasn't clear, Paul makes it more clear. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. I want you all to speak in tongues. It's a great thing but even more to prophesy. Why? I'm going to have you write this. You'll not see it on the screen yet. But look at the middle of verse 5. 
The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Did you catch it? The one who prophesies. So he's downplaying tongues. They want to make much of tongues. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Write this thought down. You'll see it later, I believe. But right now we're going to keep flowing through the scripture. But watch, write this thought. Preaching is better than tongues. So you ought to ask the Lord, Lord, fill me with your word so much so that I go around declaring your truth. Whether I ever do it on a platform or not, that's not, that, that's not the main thing. Fill me with your words to give to people. Because preaching is far more important. It's more beneficial. Can I just insert this real fast? Verse 5 is not saying that preachers are better than or preachers are, 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 are more important themselves. Their gift of preaching and teaching God's word is more beneficial to the audience than sitting there listening to somebody talking a language you don't understand. That's just a fact. That's what God says. Now, let's read verse 6 to 9, and here's the thought you're going to hear. When you speak, really strive to be understood. Make it understandable. That's the goal. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, Paul says, hey, if I come to Corinth, signed by the road, the Apostle Paul with the Corinthian church, February 5th. I'm going to be there that week. I love it when Paul comes by. Verse 6, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, that's all he does, shows up. And now, Brother Paul. On and on and on and on. Heard you had Paul this morning. Yep, we did. How was it? Yeah, it was okay. What did he say? I have no clue. What? I have no clue. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or some prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If Chris just got up here and just kind of pressed on the keyboard. Bless their heart, the worship team would be like, what? When do I come? What, are, what song? You'd be like, what song is this? Now, you got to have distinct sounds. Verse 8, if the bugle, Paul says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Dun, 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 dun. Charge! You got a new guy on the bugle, new guy. People are like, you got some charging, you got some retreating, you got some standing there, they're getting slaughtered. What in the world? Now, you got to be distinct, understandable. Verse 9. So with yourselves, Corinthians, if with your tongue, speaking these other languages, you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. Remember how I said it's languages? I believe the tongues in Acts are the same as the tongues in Corinthians. Look at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So verse 12 is about, so strive, grace for you, to edify each other, understandably. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, you Corinthians, you're eager for that, that's great, strive to excel in building up the church. Now watch what Paul says in verse 13 down to 17. Here's what he's going to say. 
If I'm, here's what Paul says, me, if I'm praying, I literally heard this very recently. I won't go into it. Paul's attitude, if I'm praying in the Spirit, in any tongue or singing, praise to God, in the Spirit, I'm filled with the Spirit. He says, I would rather do those things in a way that I know what I'm doing. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For I, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I, Paul says, will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. He says, I want both. Somebody could literally be filled with the Spirit, and they're singing praise to God. and They don't even know what they're saying. They just say, this is a great feeling, and they're singing something to God, and it just feels right. And Paul's like, that's great. You know what I'd love to have? I'd love to have my spirit engaged and know what in the world I'm saying. I want both. Verse 15. I'm sorry, skip down to 16. Otherwise, you say, why is that important? If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider... Say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Remember chapter 12, verse 7, why all spiritual gifts are given is to edify the whole body and build up the whole body. Nobody's being edified except this one person. Verse 18, this is important. I, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. That blows my mind. More than all of you. I speak in tongues, I thank God, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but watch, nevertheless in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, meaning a language you don't know what in the world I'm saying. That little scenario I did where Paul visited and he did all that, Paul says, far better than that is if I come and gave you five words. How was Paul? He preached. What did he say? He just hammered five words over and over and over. Well, how was that? It was a lot better than the other time he came. It was a lot better than that. You see what he's saying? This stood out to me, verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues like active, like this is something that happens regularly. I speak in tongues more than all of you Corinthians. Nevertheless, in church. Did you catch that? Here's what Paul seems to be saying. Oh, yeah, out there? There are times where God gives me the ability to speak in languages I've never heard, and it is needed. But in here, I don't want to do that. I want you to understand. I want to edify and build you up. I mean, even if I only had five words, what was Paul's message? Over and over, God will never forsake you. God will never forsake you. He just hammers on it the whole time. Or Jesus' death saves from sin. Or faith in Jesus provides salvation. Or God's word is always true. Five words you understand is a whole lot better than 10,000. That was impressive. That was impressive. And you start putting this person way up here. Boy, there's something else. What did you learn about God? I didn't learn anything about God. But boy, that person, they are great. They can speak in tongues. Paul's... I don't, it's not in the text. I don't think it's in the text. But basically, he's like, yeah, who are you on that? I don't think that's in the text. That's what he's saying. Uh, quickly, look at verse 23. Skip down 23. We're going to take those quick, two quick notes, and then we're coming down the home stretch. 
Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, could you imagine this crowd this morning? And we have a visitor. And Chris and the worship team starts leading singing and hands go up and you're singing and all of a sudden it breaks out and everybody's speaking in a foreign language. You're speaking in a foreign language, but we have visitors. What would happen? Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Hey, I heard you were going to Graceview. How'd that go? Yeah, I'm never going back. Why? Those people are nuts. Why? There was just a bunch of yakking and gibberish and something. I have no idea. It scared me to death. Verse 24. But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. It doesn't mean just in this part of the service. It means before the service and after the service. And every time you come around the people of God at Graceview, it's like, oh, I like those people down there. Why? They won't shut up about God. They're constantly, like not just the, the one guy that talks so long. I mean, it's all of them. They're constantly, they talk about other things, but they're, they hammer about God and Jesus. They just love him. I want what they've got. Oh, yeah, that's the result. Just on and on with tongues serves no purpose. Write these two thoughts down. Preaching is better than tongues. And then secondly, unsaved people are impacted far more by clear preaching than they are by the gift of tongues, unknown languages. Preaching is far more impactful. All right, then the last section. And in a few moments, I'll stop abruptly, and it'll seem like an odd ending. After you've written that, let's finish in chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Hey, we're only here once, I hope. I don't, I don't really want to. Thankfully, I'm glad we record these things sometimes. So if anybody ever comes, hey, what do y'all believe about this, that, and the other? Yeah, what day was that? Go look on the website. Go read that. If you've got any questions, come back. 1 Corinthians 13. So chapter 12, 13, 14. 12, 13, 14. These are the three chapters in Corinthians. That it's all, this is it. This is the last thing that the New Testament says about the tongues, the gift of tongues, is these three chapters. Now in the middle of it, go to chapter 13. Look at verse 8. Everybody go there quickly. Paul writes, love never ends. As for prophecies, remember preaching. They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, you say, what's this knowledge? It's where some people just know more. They just know more about the things of God. Some know more than others. This one knows this, and this one over here knows this, and this one knows this, and this one knows some of that, some of that, but none of them know all that each other know, but some know more. Verse number 8 continues. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 9. For we know, now Paul just gave three spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. But now he's going to pull two of them out. For we know in part, at best in this life, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Nobody's preached it all. Nobody has. No, none of us know it all to preach it all, and none of us have all the knowledge. So we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. So what's happening? Everybody with me? Watch. Paul is going to show them 
how great love is. So over here is all the spiritual gifts, and he's going to show them. The spiritual gifts that you guys prize the most at their very best are not as good as love because love outranks. You say, well, I only have this gift. I don't have that one. And I can't speak in tongues. And I don't have all that knowledge. Do you know that people can have these other gifts, really have them, but they don't really love God and love other people? And so if you have what you consider to be a lesser gift, but you just love God and love people, you're winning. I promise. Love is the greatest. And so what Paul does is he shows that love is superior in one way by showing these are the the gifts you you, you value so much. Love's going to be here long after they've stopped. And he mentions prophesying, preaching, tongues, and special knowledge. These people know more than others. Did you catch what he said about prophecy, preaching, and knowledge? He says they're going to pass away. MacArthur writes the following. He says in both cases, prophecy and and knowledge, he says in both cases the verb indicates that something will put an end to those two functions. What puts an end to them? It's in the text. The When the what? When the perfect comes. You still, y'all still with me? Doing good. Hang, we're, we're getting there. Watch. So what is the perfect? When the perfect comes, preaching stops and special knowledge stops. What's the perfect? Well, the Bible's perfect and they didn't have the Bible. I guess when the New Testament was finished. Nope. We still have preaching and some still have knowledge that others don't. It wasn't the Bible. Well, Jesus is perfect. And when Jesus comes back, then these two things will be They'll pass away. No, because when Jesus comes back and conquers the enemy and we enter into the millennial kingdom, there's going to be people born, physical bodies, little babies, and they're going to have to be taught. So there's going to have to be teaching and preaching, and there's going to be people that know more than others. So it's not the second coming of Jesus. Though the Bible is perfect and Jesus is perfect, so what is it? The best guess we can have, and I am being influenced by MacArthur in this, is it's the eternal state. When the eternal state comes... Then we'll know, everybody will know the same. And we won't need preaching anymore. I promise you, when eternity comes, hey, everybody gather around. Gather around. I got a message. Okay. I want to talk about what Paul wrote to Timothy. Oh, you mean what he wrote to him? But there's Paul to Timothy. You mean what he wrote to him? You're going to tell us about it? We don't need that. Preaching stops. Nobody has special knowledge. But Paul uses a different word in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He uses a different word for tongues. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Tongues will cease. What does that mean? Write this down. Paul teaches that tongues, the word cease means it would cease on its own when it fulfilled its purpose. Paul taught that tongues will cease on its own when it fulfills its purpose. Pretend the room is empty. I need you to do this. Pretend the room is empty and that sound booth is not there. And back there we have that hard surface. You with me? We're going to go over here and there's going to be three people with three marbles. And they're going to roll their marbles. And all three people, mark, set, go, and they roll their marbles three of them. One represents prophesying, preaching, one represents special knowledge, and one represents the gift of tongues. Three marbles are rolled. Two of them are going to make it all the way over there, moving along pretty good. 
but they're pow, they're going to hit that wall and they're going to stop. Something stops them. The eternal state, no more preaching, nobody has special knowledge. But the third marble stopped on its own back over here. That's what Paul predicted. Write this thought, continue. Paul predicted that tongues would cease on its own when it fulfilled its purpose. Church history, MacArthur again, study this and point this out to us. Church history reveals that is exactly what happened. So much so that tongues stopped being used among Christians in the church shortly after the first century. I mean, just through the first century, and then tongues dried up. You say, now this is important. It's not in your handout. You say, Jeff, in all the world, are you saying tongues stopped being spoken right at the end of the first century? With the exception of heretical groups. I'm not saying today that our brothers and sisters, our friends in Christ who, use, who, who, who look to this gift as part of their, their regular meetings. I'm not talking about them as heretical. I'm talking about people back then when you study church history. The only people after the first century that were still speaking in tongues are those that like didn't believe the true doctrine of the Bible at all. They were just doing something else. But it stopped until the early 1900s. So here's what's strange. Acts... And 1 Corinthians are the only two New Testament books that talk about the miraculous gifts like healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, and interpreting tongues. You say, well, they must be the only books that talk about spiritual gifts. Nope. The later books like Ephesians and Romans and 1 Peter also talk about spiritual gifts, but they don't talk about the miraculous ones. It's as though it's already starting to wind down. Just the early ones put that in. So I leave you with this this morning. All right, Jeff. Based off what you just said, Paul predicted that tongues would cease on its own. The other two haven't stopped yet. Tongues will cease on its own. And history shows that it did. Do you believe that tongues can exist today and that God can use the gift of tongues today? Is God using the gift of tongues today? I answer that in closing two ways. Number one, I want to share with you the last thing the Bible has to say about tongues. It's not on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, if you still have it in 1 Corinthians, look at 14, verse 39. Here's the last thing the Bible says. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So write this down. The last thing the Bible, the last word the New Testament gives about tongues is to not forbid them. So Jeff, do you think tongues exist today or can God do that? Far be it from me, little bitty me, to say what God can and cannot do. The last word of the Bible is don't forbid and speak, to speak in tongues. So, you say, where are you at, Jeff? Because Paul is a true prophet. He said that tongues would run its course and stop on its own, and it did. That did happen. Can it happen again? Here's what I know. It did stop. But if God wants it to start again at any point, he's God. He can do anything he wants. I'm not putting him in my little theological box. I'm not doing that. So, And if he wants to not do it in one place and do it in another place, that's his business. God can do what he wants to do. But I said I would answer the question in two ways. One, that's the last word on tongues. Here's the second way I would answer it. If God, you ask me my opinion, this is my opinion, 
Should we expect that? Can God do that? Here's all I would say. If he did revive that gift and use that gift, I believe he would use it in a way that still lines up with the purposes that were laid out in the New Testament. So what were those? It would edify believers, and it would primarily be used for evangelism to unsaved people. And that's why I personally have a lot of problem with what a lot of people are saying is the gift of tongues in America. Because it doesn't seem to be edifying anybody except putting a certain group of people up on a pedestal. And they're not using it evangelistically. You say, well, then what, Jeff, would that look like? Could God do this in our day? I, for one, wouldn't put it past God to have a Christian in a part of the world or in a situation where they're talking, trying to speak to a lost person, but they're in a context they've never been before, they've never learned this language, and God miraculously fills this person with the Holy Spirit, and they were to start speaking in that person's language without ever having learned it and share the gospel with them, and they were to get saved, now that would be speaking in tongues, and I'd say, praise the Lord, that sounds like something he would do. A lot of this wildfire that we see going along in America, I just don't see it lining up with the whole tone and the prediction of the Apostle Paul. And that's where I'm at. Send all your emails <laughs> and critiques and blastings to Brother Larry Wilson, Larry K. Wilson. <laughs> at No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Right where, you, right where you're at. Would you do this right quick? Just thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. That is massive. He gives us assurance, power to live, sanctification, guidance, understanding of the Scripture. But then He fills us uniquely to talk for Him. And it's not just to talk about any old thing. It's to talk about the wonderful works of God and the gospel of Christ. So thank God. Like, Don't just like tune me out. Right now, tell the Lord, Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling me and baptizing me. And then invite the Holy Spirit. Would you fill me? Would you fill me? Use me to speak on your behalf. While you're at it, thank God for sharing the gospel and speaking his truth into you in your language. In a way that you understand. I was a nine-year-old boy, and God sent Ed Yeoman and my grandfather to really talk in a way that I could understand it as just a nine-year-old boy. Has God done that with you? If he has, thank him, Lord. Thank you for speaking to me in a way that made the gospel clear. Thank you for that. And then ask him, Lord, would you use me to speak the gospel clearly to someone else? Invite him. My last thing is, what is your spiritual gift? You've got one if you're a Christian. Learn what it is. Ask God to empower it. And then use it to be a blessing and a benefit to this body of believers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, and thank you for these folks' patience. Lord, where I went awry and my interpretation of a passage or my thoughts were wrong, I pray that you would just let that fall on deaf ears. But Lord, where we rightly divided your word in such a big task this morning, with a lot being said, I pray that we would just be thankful that you'll go to any lengths to save people once you set your sight on them even giving people the ability to speak in languages they've never learned. And so, Lord, we just ask you to save all around the world. Let us be part of the great commission of taking the gospel 
to the ends of the earth. We ask it in Christ's name.